morning. morning. Will you pray with me? Father, we are honored to come here today and uh, thankful to be called your children. We ask that you open our minds and our hearts and that you teach us, that you impress your word upon us in such a way that we are transformed by it and that we reflect you and give you all the glory as we go out from here today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have spent any amount of time or effort in looking for a church to join out there prior to landing here at Bible Baptist, then you know that the condition of the church out there is not well. It would seem as though practically everybody is confused as to what the church is and what the church does. And if you, would to, if you were to take a closer look at all the splintering and apostating denominations and sects out there, one of the other things you would notice is that they're not able to come to an agreement on the fundamentals of the Christian faith, let alone all the other specifics. One of the main reasons for this is because ever since the Enlightenment period, or what we call the Age of Reason, when man began to approach the interpretation of the Bible as a historical discipline rather than a theological one, people tend to come to the Bible today looking for practical application, or what we call methodology, rather than approaching the Bible to know and abide with God, which is what we call theology. In reality, however, it is our theology that produces and governs our methodology. As we cannot even begin to understand who we are as the church, nor what we ought to be doing, without first understanding who Jesus truly is. To put it plainly, you must be personally changed by the knowledge of Christ. And so today we are going to be reading a passage out of Matthew chapter 16. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Matthew chapter 16. The passage we are going to be reading is verses 13 through 20, which serves as the climax in Matthew's gospel narrative. Before it, Matthew, who was a Jew, uh, started off with a genealogy in order to show us that Jesus is both the son of David and the seed of Abraham before we see the announcing of the kingdom followed by the Galilean ministry and then our passage. After our passage, we see how Jesus announces that he must suffer and die on the cross and then he descends into Jerusalem in order to accomplish our salvation. So our passage today not only serves as the climax, but also a pivot point in the narrative. And in it, we are going to see how the disciples move beyond an understanding of what Jesus was doing to who Jesus truly is. And it's in light of that that we are going to be provided with three identifying characteristics of the church that are all rooted in the identity of Christ himself. So by now you should have your Bibles open. Please join me as we read, starting in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. 
He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Today's message is titled, Christ and His Church. And the first identifying mark of the church that we see in our text today is that the church knows and confesses Christ. The church knows and confesses Christ. Take a look at 13 again. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea Philippi was all the way up north in Israel by the border, and it was on the highest of mountains. It was about 25 miles north of Galilee where they were coming from, and it would have taken them about two days to get there. And the text does not tell us exactly why he went there, but we do know that it was a completely pagan region. They worshipped Baals, they worshipped the fertility gods, they also worshipped Caesar. And if we zoom out a little bit to consider the context of our passage, we, we get a better understanding of why he would have brought his disciples there. Because just before our passage, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were testing Jesus. And they were demanding a sign. And Jesus said, the only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. And then he warns his disciples about the false teaching of the Pharisees and telling them, uh, do not let the heresy of the Pharisees in because it will infect everybody. And if you look at the last verse of our passage in verse 20, it says, Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And so we could see that he was trying to isolate the sound teaching and keep everybody else in the dark. And this is further emphasized in Matthew's gospel by the fact that this passage is actually located right in the middle of the gospel, the kingdom parables. And if you know the parables, they are Jesus taught in parables for the sake of keeping the uh, elect enlightened and the reprobate in the dark. What is that beeping? But when he got there to Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, if you were here two weeks ago, I had the privilege of preaching on the book of Daniel. The Son of Man is coming from the book of Daniel. And basically, it is a divine human figure who would rule in God's kingdom in end times. And throughout Matthew's gospel here, Jesus has already made the connection that he is the Son of Man. So what he's really asking is, what is the common word about me among those who are following and they go on to tell him that some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. In other words, the people, they understood that Jesus was some kind of important prophet from God, but they really didn't understand who he was. 
But now Jesus goes and he turns it on his disciples and he says, but who do you say that I am? And at this point, Peter speaks up as a representative for the disciples and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. The word Christ is the equivalent of Messiah and it means anointed one. And we look back on Jesus as the Christ and we say, okay, he came to accomplish our salvation and to atone for our sins, but they didn't have all that worked out. They simply knew that he was from God. They had watched as he was doing healings, as he was doing miracles and deliverances, and he was teaching with authority. Calling him the Christ is all about recognizing his function and what he was doing. But they did not stop there. He went on to say that you are the son of God. And this term is an inverted reference to Jesus being God the son. As we see in John chapter 1 verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. Now, in this version here, it says only son, but some of them say only begotten son. And the Greek that they're trying to translate here is a word that means that he is of the same kind. In other words, Jesus shares the same nature with the Father. When we think of the Trinity, we need to understand that God the Father is the unbegotten source. And he eternally generates the son. This is what makes the son the son and the father the father. The father generates the son. And then from the father and son proceeds the spirit. Yet God is eternal. He is timeless. And so there's not some point in time in which the father generated the son or the spirit proceeded from the father and son. God is eternally self-existent in three persons and we are seeing that the second person of the trinity took on flesh and that is who jesus is and everybody understood that what this was saying was making the link that jesus is one with god as we see in john chapter 5 where it says this was why the jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the sabbath according to their rules but he was even calling his own, calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so here we see that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And this is what makes him capable of saving us. It's not like we gave ourselves over to some other human in order to accomplish our salvation. Jesus is God. And if you've ever went out and done evangelism before, you know that the majority of the people, well, they're just not going to get it. All right, you're going to go out and you're going to meet resistance. You're going to have people be combative. They are going to uh, not understand who Jesus is. All the while, though, they might agree with you that Jesus lived, that Jesus died on the cross, and some of them might even agree with you that it's recorded that he came back from the dead. But they will have no clue who he is, and that is because, as it says in our text in verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
It is not because we or the disciples are of a greater intellect than other people that we come to know that Jesus is God. It is because God reveals himself to us, and we are all dependent upon that. And this really comes to light when we think about when Jesus went to the cross, because we are not saved by believing what Jesus has done for us. We are saved by believing in the person of Jesus Christ. And when we think about Jesus having gone to the cross, he was there with the thief next to him who had no idea what he was doing. The, the, the thief on the cross had no idea why Jesus was on the cross. He had no idea what he was going to accomplish through the cross. Yet God revealed to him who Jesus is, and on account of that, Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. And so all of us, just like that thief on the cross, are sinners in need of grace. And we are being urged to believe not just what Jesus has done, but who Jesus truly is. So may we all have faith in him moving forward. Yet this is really just the starting point coming to understand who jesus is that he's fully god and fully man this is just the starting point as the text goes on to tell us also that the church is built on christ forever the church is built on christ forever take a look at verse 18 it says and i tell you you are peter and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is one of those verses that have always been argued and probably always will be argued. There are three main ways to interpret it. The first one, we see mainly the the Roman Catholics who take this position, but others do too, but they would argue that Peter is the rock. Now, the Roman Catholics do this in order to try to argue for papal succession. Um, But there are other Protestants that take this position as well. Unfortunately, it leads to some serious theological issues, which should be obvious here when we unfold the meaning of this verse. The second way that people tend to interpret this verse is to argue that Peter's confession is the rock of the church. The problem is, is that this first off doesn't make much sense to make the foundation of our salvation something that we say. Second, the confession of Peter here was not particular to Peter. Because if you put your finger in this page and flip two pages back in your Bible, just go back to Matthew chapter 14, you'll see in verses 22 to 33 the story of Jesus walking on the water. And if you remember that story, Jesus had just got done with the feeding of the 5,000, and he was tired, and he wanted to pray, so he sent his disciples across the sea, and they ended up in choppy waters, so he came out walking on the water. He ends up uh, inviting Peter out onto the water. Peter gets scared, falls in the water, and Jesus grabs a hold of him, throws him in the boat, and look at what it says at the very end of it in verse 33. It says, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. So the disciples already understood who Jesus was, and this um, confession of Peter's is not particular to Peter. 
So that leads us to the third way to interpret this verse, which I believe to be the correct one. And that is to say that Peter is a stone and Jesus is the rock. Now, first off, we need to consider the language because the word Peter here is the Greek word Petros and the word rock is the Greek word Petra. Petros is a stone while Petra is a large foundational rock. Beyond that, Matthew has already made the case in chapter 7 that Jesus is the rock. As he said, and the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And this was referring to Jesus. But even beyond that, what we really need to understand is that Matthew was a Jew writing to Jews, and what we are seeing here is actually a fulfillment of prophecy. We read the passage while uh, we were doing the scripture reading, but let us take a look at it again. It's coming from Isaiah chapter 28. It says, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem, because you have said we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol. We have an agreement when the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us for we have made lies our refuge and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes in me will not be in haste. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and water will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled and your agreement with Sheol will not stand when the overwhelming scourge passes through. So the people of Israel had been trusting in the nations rather than God. And by doing so, they made a covenant with death and with Sheol, which is the realm of the dead. And they felt as though there was absolutely no hope for themselves. And so God intervenes and he lays a foundation, which is Jesus, and says all those who trust in him will not be put to shame. In fact, when it talks about the whip and the scourge, this is talking about how Jesus would be whipped and scourged for our transgressions so that we would be forgiven and the covenant with death would be annulled as we have a new covenant of eternal life established in Jesus Christ our Lord. And that is what we are seeing here and that is also how Peter understood this passage, because if we go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, look at what Peter said. He said, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up on a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It stands in Scripture Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put 
to shame. And so what we are seeing here is that once we come to know who Jesus is, we must entrust our life to him. Because when we do that, we are resting on our firm foundation, which is Christ, and he will build us up. The text says that Jesus builds his church, and Jesus will build us up when we entrust our life to him. A good example here would be the life of Charles Spurgeon. Many people today know who he is, yet they don't uh, know much about his early years. In his early years, Charles Spurgeon grew up in a Christian home. His parents were ministers. He went to church. His earliest memories were of reading books such as Pilgrim's Progress and other books by Puritans. And because of that, he thought all was well and good. And then one day, when he was 15 years old, he was headed to church on a Sunday morning, and there was a snowstorm. And the snowstorm was so bad that he wasn't able to go the way he normally went. So he ended up having to go down a different alley and seeking shelter. He went up in this little Methodist chapel that was there. And when he got there, he walked in and sat down. And the storm was so bad that the pastor didn't even show up. And so here you got this lay elder who gets up behind the pulpit and he reads this verse. He says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God, and there is no other. And after he fumbles around for a couple of minutes, he points to Charles Spurgeon and he says, You young man, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. And it was at once that he came to realize that he was trusting in himself and he needed to trust in Christ alone for his salvation. And when he did, he entrusted his life to him. And we can look back today and look at all the amazing things that God did through that man because he was willing to give his life to Christ. And every one of you sitting here today have the same potential. If you would just give your life to Jesus, there is no telling what Jesus will do in you and through you. And it could reverberate for many, many years to come, but we must give ourselves to him. And as we entrust our lives to Jesus, we are building our life upon him. Yet in order to do that, we need some guidance. And that's what brings us to our third point, which is the church lives by the words of Christ. The church lives by the words of Christ. Take a look at verse 19. It says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Here again is another one of those verses that has been ripped out of its context and exploited time and time again. We want to be very careful when we read anything in the Bible not to take it out of its context. And in order for us to understand this, once again, we have to go into the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 22, look at what it says. It says, I will thrust you, meaning Shebna, from your office, and you will be pulled down from your station. In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and he will clothe him and will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. 
and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place. And he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. Now Shevna was the administrator for King Hezekiah. And he was a man that was full of pride and arrogance and unbelief. And so God was transferring his authority to Eliakim, who would be clothed with honor and majesty and, and authority, and handed the keys of the kingdom. And this was a prefiguring of what was going to happen in the Gospels as we see the false teachers in Israel, meaning the Pharisees and, and the Sadducees and the scribes and such, they were having the authority taken away from them and handed to Jesus, who has all authority. And we know that it's talking about Jesus because when we get to Revelation chapter 3, it says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. It is Jesus who has all authority in heaven and earth. It is Jesus who has his word. And as we entrust our life to him, he entrusts his word to us. Now, some of you may look at our passage today and say, well, it, it seems as though it's just Peter that's being handed the keys of the kingdom here. But when we get to chapter 18, it's really clear because it says it again. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And here the you is plural. It is talking about all of the disciples. We all are being handed the keys of the kingdom. And when we look at the language here, don't let it confuse you. The whole loosing and binding thing means to permit and forbid. Permit and forbid. It is legal jargon. And when we look closely at it, it talks about when we, uh, when we loose, it, it, shall, it, shall, yeah, it shall be loose and it shall be bound. In the Greek, it's actually in the past. It shall have been loosed. It shall have been bound. And so the idea here is that as we entrust our lives to Jesus, Jesus entrusts us with his word. And he gives us his word in order to know him. He gives us his word in order to live by it. And he gives us his word in order to proclaim him to other people. But when we make rulings in our lives with it, it is not that we are doing so in our own authority. We are doing it in God's authority who has already ruled on it. And so the word of God is our way forward. It is the keys of the kingdom. And it is the way that we are able to live a life that is different than the rest of the world. And so as we come to a close here, let us reflect on the fact that here we have seen how being a part of the church means that we know and we confess Christ. Secondly, that we are secure in him forever. Christ is our foundation. And because he is our rock and we are his stones, we don't have to worry about following the wrong leader. We don't have to worry about saying the right confession. 
We don't have to worry about falling away because Jesus is God and he cannot lose hold of you. And we live by his word. We have a duty to confess Christ and live according to his word. So I ask each of you here today, who do you say that Jesus is? Do you know him as God? Do you confess him before others? Have you told your co-workers? Have you told your family? Do people around you know that you are a Christian because you proclaim Christ? And do you read the Bible and respond to it? Because we must be changed by personal knowledge of Christ. So I ask you, are you thankful? Are you thankful for what Jesus has done for you? Are you thankful that he has taken you out of the dominion of darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of his marvelous light? Are you humble before others knowing that having come to a realization of who he is is only by the revelation of God and not by you? Are you humbled knowing that you didn't add anything to your salvation other than the sin that makes it necessary? We must be humble before others, and we should be humbled in knowing that all of it is of God. And are you making sound decisions according to Scripture? At the end of the day, the only thing that truly separates us from the rest of the world is this right here. And so if you are not in God's word, and you are not applying it to your life, and you are not allowing him to change you and build you up and transform you through it, nobody will ever come to see God through you. Yet, as we reflect on the coming of Christmas here and we go out from here preparing our hearts, don't let yourself focus too heavily on what Jesus came to do. Remember to reflect on who he is and allow that to transform your life for his sake and to his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are, and we thank you for having revealed yourself to us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for a foundation that will never be washed away, an eternal and secure foundation that is Christ. Help us to be built up in the church. Help us to hold to your word and to live by it. And may we be changed and all those around us by it. And we ask this in Christ's name.